And I think that's what good art does. That's what good writing does. It helps us to say something true about the things that are real. And as Christians, we assume that what is real is not what is just simply perceived in the scientific method. We assume that the truth is a much larger universe created deliberately by a loving God and a loving God who has certain characteristics or traits that are real and that ought to be conveyed truthfully in the art that we make. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Diana P. Glyer is a scholar, an author, and a professor in Azusa Pacific University's Honors College. She's an expert on Tolkien and Lewis, especially with regard to those writers' collaboration and the Inklings. She's the editor of A Compass for Deep Heaven, a collection of essays about C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. This book is the fruit of Professor Glyer's practicing what she preaches in generous collaboration with emerging scholars. Diana Glyer, I'm so glad you're on the Habit Podcast again to talk about a book that you, for which you were the editor, you don't actually contribute a chapter, but you're the editor of A Compass for Deep Heaven, Navigating the C.S. Lewis Ransom Trilogy. I I am so excited to be here. And you're right, uh, Jonathan, I haven't contributed a chapter to this new book, but uh, serving as editor and overseeing the work of these emerging scholars has been a privilege to me. As you know, I talk about collaboration a lot. My mm-hmm. book, Bandersnatch, really emphasizes the value of magic, the magic of collaboration. And so maybe one way to think about A Compass for Deep Heaven, it is the theories of Bandersnatch, the theories of how the Inklings collaborated, put into practice as I work to oversee a fine group of emerging scholars as we work together over a three-year period mm-hmm. to produce this new book. So these were your were these your all your students um, who contributed these chapters? Yeah, that's a great question. So this book has a really interesting history. I teach at Azusa Pacific University, and I'm part of the Honors College program, which is a four year great books program. Those who are film, familiar, those who are familiar with classical education, will recognize the value of a great works program. And so that's what the Honors College does at APU. In the senior year, those students are put into groups of eight, nine, or 10 students who work together intensely and in person for a full year's time to research and write a book together. And that's their senior capstone. So when you think about a senior capstone project, you might Think about like a senior thesis or a theme, senior essay that students do. Our students actually write a book together. And at this point, they've written more than 20 of these books. And uh, the books then are published by the Honors College in small batches. So we'll sell 50, 500, uh, 600 copies and call it good. Well, Every now and then, this one-year experience of working together in the classroom produces a work that is so well done and that meets such a real need that I uh, continue to meet with those students and I say, hey, what do you think? Would you be interested in taking this class work that you did to the next level? Would you consider spending the summer writing a book proposal, and then seeing if a conventional publisher would be interested in picking this up. 
So that's what we did. Um, the book was originally entitled Warnings from Outer Space, Backdrops and Building Blocks of C.S. Lewis's Science Fiction. And so the uh, publisher, Square Halo Books, didn't like that as well. Yeah. Uh, and so they changed the title to A Compass for Deep Heaven. But the process throughout the entire thing remained highly interactive. And so it was a joy for me. You know, you talk about ideas like maybe collaboration or imagination or critique or resonators, uh, as I do. And what fun it has been for me to see those things come to life in the producing of this particular new book. Yeah, I, I love this idea that last time we were talking, we were talking about Bandersnatch and the and the your lessons for collaboration. Um, which, by the way, the, the folks in the um, in that that it's amazing how often that book comes up in discussions in the Habit membership, where people are kind of talking about you know things that have benefited them and and the ways that they might organize themselves into into critique groups your book comes up all the time and so oh, that's encouraging for that. me to hear yeah, yeah. I, but you know cs lewis and jrr tolkien their friendship and the the way that the inklings met over a period of nearly 20 years to bring out the best in each other i mean what a great role model they provide for us and and i like it because it's not only instructive but it's really inspiring yeah. to read about the ways that they interacted yeah. Okay. So this book is about the Ransom Trilogy or the Space Trilogy, um, which we can talk about why um, some people don't like to call it the Space Trilogy, which I think is is an interesting topic. But anyway, maybe we can get back to that. Um, the The Ransom Trilogy actually started, it grew out of a bet that these collaborators, Tolkien and Lewis, made with one another. Right. That, that's true. The story of how this book got started never ceases to delight me because I can so picture what had happened. So you have to imagine C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien before they were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, if you know what I mean. I mean, they're just guys. They're just yeah. professors. Both of them have been largely unrecognized for their academic work or their poetry, or all these things that they think they're going to do that's going to make their name and make them famous. So they're sitting around in the pub and uh, C.S. Lewis says, hey, you know, there's not enough of the kind of novels, the kind of books that we like to read. Yeah. So we shall have to write them ourselves. And it's just such a, a, uh, an extravagant notion. We shall have to write them ourselves. Well, first of all, you have to ask the question, what kind of books are they talking about? Uh-huh. And uh, Lewis is talking about uh, books that contain truth or convey a mythic or mythopoeic sense. So he had been reading books like Charles Williams, The Place of the Lion, and David Lindsay's A Voyage to Arcturus. These are books that not only have a great adventure story to them, but it's all undergirded with a powerful sense of truth and insight into the human condition. Those are the kind of books he liked, not books that were just good for passing the time, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just guilty pleasures, but books that really conveyed something. Um, We might think about what he said um, about George MacDonald's work, right? When he read Fantasties and he said, this book has baptized my imagination. And that's the kind of book that he wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And so he's sitting there with Tolkien. And I mean, the funny thing is, 
I always compare this to a couple of film students getting together in their freshman year at university and looking at Star Wars and saying, you know, that George Lucas guy, I think he might be onto something. Why don't we make our own version with our iPhones? Yeah, let's do that. Let, you know, it's, they had never written, written novels. They hadn't published anything of significance. And now they're going to write, you know, great books that embody myth. And so... Uh, they, they actually tossed a coin. They said that two of the most powerful ideas when it comes to these kinds of mythopoeic stories are the ideas of time travel and space travel. So, so here's, the, here's the crazy thing. They actually tossed a coin <laughs> to see who would get which. And so this became, it's completely a lark. It's yeah. a barroom bet. They tossed a coin and Tolkien got um, time travel. And Lewis got space travel. And there's a number of things about that I think are significant in understanding the science fiction trilogy. So you have to imagine them in this smoky pub after a few beers making this bet. And then Lewis walks home and in the cold air of the evening, <laughs> he starts to realize, what did I just do? What did I just commit to? But he was a quick writer, as you may know. He was one who would kind of sit and just write really fast. And so I picture him getting home and going, well, I better start this thing. If I'm going to finish it, I'd better get started. Yeah. And uh, he says, well, but I'm really mad at Tolkien for putting me up to this, even though it was actually <laughs> Lewis's idea, right? And so the character that opens out of the silent planet is a character that at the beginning Lewis calls the pedestrian. Now, this character is Elwyn Ransom, is his name. Elwyn means elf friend. <laughs> Elwyn Ransom is a dowdy professor who gets mixed up and lost in finding directions, gets caught in a rainstorm, and then kidnapped and taken to Mars. Elwyn Ransom is also a philologist. Now, Tolkien, of course, was trained as a linguist, and identified himself as a philologist, a lover of language. And so it seems pretty clear to me that as Lewis began writing Out of the Silent Planet, it's a little bit of payback for his friend <laughs> Tolkien, who uh, kind of put him up to this bet. So, so for Lewis, Out of the Silent Planet was the fruit of that bet. That book did really well. The publisher asked for more. And so Lewis went on to write two more science fiction books, Paralandra, and then That Hideous Strength, Tolkien was a little less successful. You remember that Tolkien was slow and methodical mm -hmm. in his writing. He did start a story. He started a story called The Lost Road, but he never finished it. But what's interesting about that is even though he was unsuccessful in the challenge that arose out of the wager, Tolkien uh, traces the success of Lord of the Rings back to that moment when Lewis challenged him to write a novel. And so these kinds of conversations among writers, this wasn't like an Inklings meeting. This was just meeting for lunch. This was just mm -hmm. a hanging out kind of time. These kinds of conversations are so important for creative people, right? Yeah. Because when we sit down, we meet, we meet face to face, we talk about what we're working on, we toss ideas around. We encourage one another, we function as resonators, we challenge one another, we ask for clarification. All these kinds of things that creative people do in the natural ebb and flow of community 
becomes so fruitful because that becomes the seedbed, you know, for so many great creative projects. Yeah. Hey, do you know, have you heard anything more specific about how um, uh, Tolkien's aborted project led to the Lord of the Rings? Do you know any, any more about that than, than what you just said? Yeah, he doesn't really elaborate what it is, but remember that Tolkien's creative process was very unusual. Mm -hmm. He was very interested in languages, and so he would play with invented languages, you know, like you do, <laughs> but like he does. <laughs> and then that language would suggest to him a kind of people or people group, mm -hmm. and then the people would suggest to him a place, and then that would suggest finally a story. So he's mm. writing a lot of the background. You think uh -huh. about the, the image of an iceberg, the stories that we have, like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and so on, they're the tip of the iceberg. But what Tolkien really liked to work on was the underneath part, the uh -huh. background mythologies for Middle Earth. And I think that what uh, The Lost Road did for Tolkien was give him some clarity about some aspects of the background myth that eventually informed and then emerged into the Lord of the Rings. I think it also gave him a sense of what it's like to write a novel. Like what is a, yeah. the structure? What is the genre? And I think that walking through that process with uh, Out of the Silent Planet, it kind of gave Tolkien a template for how that's done because Tolkien continued to be involved with Out of the Silent Planet through a bunch of revisions. Now, it might be interesting for you to know that when Lewis submitted Out of the Silent Planet to the publisher, the publisher didn't like it. Hmm. In fact, one of the reviewers who first read Out of the Silent Planet said, quote, C.S. Lewis may write a worthwhile book someday, but <laughs> this one isn't it. <laughs> so... Lewis took the manuscript to Tolkien. Tolkien helped him to completely revise that. And a word of encouragement for those who have ever gotten rejection letters <laughs> or who have ever found that when they thought their book was done, it wasn't quite. C.S. Lewis needed to go back to the drawing board, rewrite the work. And then Tolkien wrote a letter of endorsement to the mm -hmm. publisher. And finally, the book got picked up and published. Wow. That's great. Um, okay. I'm not, I tend not to be a science fiction person. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> oh. like Star Wars. I, I mean, I, I don't, it's not that I dislike Star Wars. I'm just not one of those people who's way into it, you know? Um, and in, um, in, um, his essay on science fiction, I, I appreciated, uh, something that, that, uh, Lewis said, he said, one may say, uh, of a, kind or, or as a genre as Wordworth says of the poet that you must love it ere you see air to you it will seem worthy of your love and that you uh, must at least have loved it once if you're ever even to warn others against it um, and so all that to say um, the the ransom trilogy is not this sort of my go-to just because it's it's um, you know, a science, you know, like I said, science fiction just isn't my thing. Although when I say science fiction, I'm thinking, you know, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, that kind of very antiseptic, not Lord of the Rings, Star, Wars, <laughs> Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, where things are very, um, like I said, antiseptic, kind of, kind of white and, um, mechanical, um, 
Oh, well, I shouldn't say that about Star Wars because there's lots of dusty planets and things. But anyway, um, I loved it. It was really helpful to me to, to, to think about what, uh, how um, Lewis, well, actually, it's really Louis Marcos talking about Lewis and says, says you know, Lewis is thinking of, in his mind, science fiction. You go to science fiction for the same reason, you know, that Dante, uh, that, that, that Lewis is motivated in his, um, science fiction by the same things that motivated Dante or Spencer or uh, now I can remember who else, who else, uh, uh, the, the Jonathan Swift, you know, these people who go to another world as a way to look back at our world. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting way to talk about, about science fiction and, and, and to reframe it as, uh, and I, I think it's clear that that's the way Lewis thought about what he was up to. Yeah. yeah, I think that Lewis is very uh, definitely asking the question, what if, right? Mm -hmm. What if we make these changes in terms of the environment for the human person? How does that shed light on uh, who we are? What kind of beings we are? What is the nature of things that are real and true and beautiful? And he assumes, as most science fiction does, that the best way to see that clearly in our own world is to take us to another place. I mean, you remember that in his description of Narnia, right? Aslan says to the children, you were brought here so that you could recognize me better, more clearly in your own world. And I think that that's what good science fiction does. And that's why I've always loved it, because I love asking that question, what if? And so the second book in the Ransom Trilogy, Paralandra, talks about what if there was a planet where the Adam and the Eve of that planet were able to resist the serpent and they were able to resist the temptation, say no to um, falling into sin and say yes to the will of God. What would that even be like? And so um, Lewis is creating this what if story uh, it doesn't have a lot of fancy science fiction apparatus. There's no, you know, laser guns and spaceships and all that kind of thing. But he is indulging in a very science fiction impulse, which is to ask the question, who are we under uh, very unusual, very different kinds of circumstances? Yeah. And for much science fiction, that means uh, what if certain technological advancements go in a particular direction? Who then are we? And how um, how will we grapple with these new realities? Yeah, yeah, it, it is a, a great a, a great way of putting people in in, in extreme situations, right? Um, which is kind of the way so much storytelling operates, anyway. Absolutely. So I, I touched er earlier on the idea that that some people don't like to call this the space trilogy, specifically. I, I think, from what I understand, because um, uh, Lewis himself made a really strong distinction between outer to think in terms of outer space as in as distinct from thinking in terms of the heavens, um, and that that our twentieth century uh, is this did this start in the twentieth century or earlier? Our, our tendency to think in of what's beyond our own sky as being you know cold empty space um, is very different from the medieval model that, um, well, and not just medieval, goes farther back than medieval, but the idea that the heavens were a place of, of light and activity and 
color rather than this cold, black, empty place. Um, and that's one of the things I, I do love about, um, about the Ransom trilogy is, is that, that framing of, of space, not as a vacuum, but as a place that's, that's at least as full of life as uh, the silent planet. Yeah, um, Lewis goes into that right at the very beginning of Out of the Silent Planet. So we have this character, Elwin Ransom, who's a dusty old college professor. He ends up getting kidnapped, thrown in a spaceship, and taken off to Mars. And in that travel, as he's on his way, he is astounded to discover that space is not cold, silent, dark, and dead. In fact, it's pulsing with life. In fact, it's as if our planets are not like the center of life and energy, but they're sort of almost black holes against this liveliness that he's experiencing. He feels more alive than he ever has before. And he's fully energized. It's almost like his youth and his imagination are renewed by the things he's experiencing as he's out of the atmosphere of Earth and into the heavens themselves. And so this is a very medieval concept. Uh, in um, a compass for deep heaven. What we try to do is we try to give different chapters on different things that Lewis assumes that we already know. And so we have a chapter on the medieval cosmos. How did the medievals see the world? And they didn't see earth as the only place where things were happening and then a bunch of dead rocks out there in outer space. They yeah. saw a heavens that was inhabited by supernatural creatures, eldils, angels, right? Uh, and, they, and they just didn't see it in the same way that we do. They saw a much larger world. And so Lewis is dipping into a medieval perspective of the larger world. And so that's why when people call it the space trilogy, um, it seems like Lewis himself is rejecting the idea of outer space. The, the other problem with that title, though, frankly, is that the third book in the series isn't about space travel at all. So in the first book in Out of the Silent Planet, they go to Mars. In the second one, they go to Venus. In the third one, they go to an even more exotic and dangerous place. They go to a university town. <laughs> and um, so everything takes place here, but the common thread through them all is the protagonist, Ransom, uh, and his maturation process as he goes from his own very pedestrian way of looking at the world to a much larger perspective of the way that God is at work in all things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, uh, Lewis's notion of myth with regard to um, the ransom trilogy um yeah I, I think we're we're comfortable talking about maybe a little more comfortable talking about myth with regard to narnia and, and the you know where where we this is almost by definition a, you know i mean we're talking about a mythical land and, and we have thomas with a book on his shelf that says is man a myth right myth and narnia um is is uh, certainly easy to see um tell me about myth and the Ransom Trilogy. 
Well, our, our first chapter in A Compass for Deep Heaven is about that idea of myth, because it's absolutely critical to understanding what Lewis is doing. Again, what we're trying to do is pinpoint those things that Lewis thinks we already understand or that Lewis assumes we already know. Mm. I think Lewis is constantly giving us the compliment, undeserved compliment perhaps, <laughs> that we're a lot smarter than we are and that we're a lot better read than we are yeah. in fact. And so this idea of myth is really key uh, to understanding the Ransom Trilogy. The, the best book on the subject of myth and, and C.S. Lewis, of course, is Charlie Starr's book, called The Fawn's Bookshelf, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis on Why Myth Matters. And he has a, a, a really extensive and really insightful summary of the importance of myth. But Julianne Johnson does a great job of distilling those key ideas in our book. The idea of myth for most people means something that's made up or something that's not true. Mm -hmm. But that's not how English teachers understand myth. We we tend to like a definition, something more along the lines of this. We say that a myth is a story that embodies the deepest truths of a culture. A story that embodies the deepest truths of a culture. So it uses a narrative form, a story, to help to reveal what is true about something. And I think, you know, Jonathan, I think that um, all art does this to some extent. So um, I mean, let me take as an example, if some of you have seen, uh, or people can picture uh, Van Gogh's painting Starry Night, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. All the swirls and the energy, right? If we can picture that, now that's not actually what I see when I look into the sky at night. And yet it captures something that is true about the nature yeah. of the cosmos. Yeah. Right? right. So when I see that, I go, oh, that feels true to me. So in a mythic sense, what Van Gogh does in that painting is he reveals the underlying truth about the nature of the universe, something that when I look up in the sky, I might not be able to see, but he's an artist mm -hmm. and he reveals that to me. So think about someone who writes a novel or, or somebody who paints a painting or somebody who creates a piece of music. And how often there you you just something in your heart goes yes yes that's yeah. that's that's right even though it isn't factual it didn't happen it doesn't right. doesn't look like that it still reveals it's like it pulls back a curtain to the true nature of something and so what Lewis is doing in the Ransom trilogy is pulling back the curtain to the true nature of a number of different things um, you might think about um, Plato and his idea that there are ideas behind the manifestations or the realities. And Lewis is doing that throughout the series, actually throughout a lot of his writing, trying to just give us a fresh glimpse uh, of these things that otherwise we might take for granted. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, Here's here's something I've been wondering about as as I was reading through the essay about myth, um, because this is a podcast for writers and not just for readers um, or for English teachers. Um, you know, the, the language of myth, I find very helpful for making sense of and, and finding a way to talk about what's going on in Lewis as a reader, as a teacher. 
Um, do you have any thoughts? I'm putting you on the spot because I don't have well-developed thoughts on this, my own self. What do we as writers, how does this notion of myth um, shape the way we do what we do as, as writers? Hmm, I think um, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I don't have an elaborated answer, but a, a mm -hmm. couple of hints, perhaps, uh, is that as we write and create, I think that we have to write with an intuition for what feels true. Mm -hmm. I've had so many writers tell me as they're writing fiction that they try to make their characters do something and the character won't do it. Have you heard yeah. that? Mm -hmm. um, that the character kind of takes on an identity or a life of its own. And they actually mm -hmm. uh, um, experience a little bit of pushback from their characters because mm -hmm. it doesn't feel authentic. So in the same way that we have to be true to the nature of our characters, if we're fiction writers, we also have to be sensitive, I think, to the nature of truth and reality. Is that actually the way that things would play out? Is that really the kind of thing that a person would say? Is that actually the consequence of that kind of an action? And I think the idea of consequence can be very, very helpful. So a lot of times I'll say to people, I think one of the most false forms of storytelling that I know of in the whole wide world is the soap opera. Uh -huh. Because I think the soap opera lies about the consequences of our action. If people behave the way they actually behave in soap operas, our human personality would be shredded. It would be splintered. Nobody could endure the kinds of things that these people go through, especially in the kind of time span that they go through. It's not telling the truth yeah. about the consequence of people's choices. And so I think that for storytellers, we have to always be asking, is this an authentic representation? Is this really kind of what happens to the human personality as they're faced with these various choices and challenges and circumstances? Um, and I think that that gets us a little bit back to myth. I want in my stories or in my nonfiction, in my essays, to be accurate and to convey the subtlety and complexity of human life. That's why we're so dissatisfied with um, nonfiction books that give too simplistic an answer, right? Mm -hmm. They don't really tap into the myth of it. That is the underlying truth and reality that really is a reflection of the way the universe is structured, the way humans are and the way that God is at work. You know, a, a story in a book is by definition, a simplification of reality, right? I mean, we, uh, we don't, um, the, the whole idea of a story is, well, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this thread in, in spite of the fact that there are many things going on besides the, the thread, but I'm not going to tell you about, um, what the, what our protagonist's dog was up to, you know, uh, <laughs> while the protagonist was at work. Um, and so storytelling is uh, necessarily a simplification, and yet there's a wrong kind of simplification. They're absolutely true. So think about, so I had a great trip in June. I went to Colorado and spent several weeks there, and I took hundreds of pictures. Now let's say that I were mean enough to show up at your house with my slide projector <laughs> and, and, and sit down and show you. I would lock the door against you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to show you 20 of those pictures. Now, 
I could select different 20s, different sets of mm-hmm. pictures to emphasize different images or different themes or different truths about that. So I spent some time praying. I spent some time hiking. I spent some time shopping, mm-hmm. right? I spent some time visiting with friends. I could select one of those different themes and I could collect my 20 images to tell that particular story. Maybe there's a whole book, a series of short stories about my time in Colorado. But there's also pictures that would mean nothing. That if I showed them to you or I showed them to you in random order or I showed them to you without explaining what they were, you know, I dropped my phone, I, you know, um, <laughs> hit the shutter too many times, you know, just all those kinds of that would not tell anything meaningful or true about that trip. So you are right. An artist is always selecting but some of the selections are sharper, clearer, and more honest in terms of representing what it is that they're trying to communicate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're, you're mentioned, I, I was, when you said you spent some of your time praying, I was just picturing, you know, 20 pictures of Diana praying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, which... I don't know. This this may not even be interesting or, or relevant, but but uh, you know, I, I've had conversations with people before about what does what does praying look like in fiction? Like, yeah, how do you yeah. tell a story about praying? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, and you might tell a story about praying more accurately. <clears throat> you might tell a story about praying more accurately by portraying an intimate conversation between two close friends over Starbucks right? Mm -hmm. That may be the thing that catches the myth. So it's not the surface level Mm -hmm. fact of what is happening. It's not a prayer meeting. But underneath what you're getting at is a picture of the intimacy that we share with our Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's what good storytelling does. It gets at that mythic quality or that underlying truth, and it conveys it in a way that helps us to see it with that kind of aha moment. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I don't know if this question is getting us further down the path that we have uh, launched on or getting us away from the path. But, but for some reason, this feels relevant to me. There, there was a time somewhere, and I, didn't, I, I ran across this, this quotation in the book. I'm not even sure where Lewis said this, but he talks about the idea that truth is always about something, but reality is that about which truth is. Is that relevant to what we're talking about here with, with myth and, and finding, you know, telling the truth in story? Um, truth is always about something, but reality is that about which truth is, which is such a strange piece of grammar anyway. But. <laughs> it's reassuring to know that Lewis sometimes used inverted and awkward <laughs> phrasing, huh? Um, uh, actually, Tolkien criticized Lewis's writing style and said that he had creaky and stiff passages. Um, <laughs> this is especially true if you look at his early work. Out of the Silent Planet is a very early work. And you yeah. compare that with a lot of his later yeah. work where he just has such greater fluency. But that's a digression. Um, so, yeah, reality is... Um, you know, what's real, what's actual, what's there. Truth is an attempt to capture, to summarize, to express that reality. 
And I think that's what good art does. That's what good writing does. It helps us to say something true about the things that are real. Mm -hmm. And as Christians, we assume that what is real is not what is just simply perceived Right. The scientific method. We assume that the truth is a much larger universe created deliberately by a loving God and a loving God who has certain characteristics or traits that are real and that ought to be conveyed truthfully yeah. in the art that we make. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think this brings us to the, the, the idea that um, um, of Lewis's criticism of science or scientism is, is the phrase he used. Um, not that he was, not that he was especially doubtful of science in its proper place, but a science that claims to, um, um, to account for reality strictly by reduction. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so Lewis does attack scientism uh, throughout the science fiction books. And I think that that's really important. I'm really glad that in A Compass for Deep Heaven, Rachel has done such a great job with that chapter on scientism. Lewis was not against science. He didn't hate science. He just believed that science was an instrument for observing certain things, and it was useless for observing other things right? Uh, a microphone will pick up certain things, but it doesn't tell you what kind of, you know, um, sky I have or where I'm sitting, right, in my living room right now. It's not designed to pick up the visual, but mm -hmm. the auditory. And so science is a way of examining and a method of examining certain physical items and their physical properties. But it's a lousy way of measuring the work of God in an individual's soul. Yeah. And so um, Lewis was very upset when people reduced our universe to mere matter and the idea that we can accomplish or answer any question through science. So you think about Carl Sagan's statement, right? The cosmos is all that was and all that is and all that will ever be. Well, the Christian rises up and say, well, nope, right? Yeah. <laughs> the cosmos is great, but what about God? What about the supernatural reality? And what about those aspects of the human personality that are really hard to measure, like intuition, like mm -hmm. prayer, like love, like mm -hmm. uh, mercy? And forgiveness. What about those things? Those are a lot harder to observe, to uh, to measure, to weigh, to describe. And that's, I think, where the artist comes in. And that's why I'm so glad that Lewis and Tolkien wrote fiction as well as nonfiction to help yeah. us to see these kinds of things. Right? We yeah. we understand that being a hero means something. But then when I read Lord of the Rings and I see these little hobbits and their incredible courage. Yeah. I understand hero at a much deeper and truer level than I yeah. would otherwise. Yeah. I love that reminder in the, in, in story that, um, that truth isn't something that happens. It's, it's not a mental state, right? It's not something that happens between our years, but, but it's, or, yeah. Or in any case, reality is not something that happens between, between our years, even if our perception is happening in our brains and in our you know nervous system. Um, uh, the, the storyteller is, you know, the, the, the venue of the storyteller is, is the world and not the, the head or the brain or, 
or the strictly human. Sure. And in that hideous strength, as you've pointed out in the past, what is scary about this scientific organization that the, our heroes are fighting against, they try to literally isolate just the brain, right? Mm -hmm. they, they have a head, like a, a <laughs> physical head in a jar hooked up to a bunch of apparatus to keep just that head alive. And Lewis couldn't be any clearer that we can't separate the head from the heart uh -huh. and we can't separate the head from our physicality. And so in, uh, as we're emerging from some of the threats of COVID, I think that one of the things that we appreciate more than ever is how important it is for us to be embodied people, to be moving, to be interacting face to face right yeah. uh, how much we miss and long for hunger for our uh the expression of our physicality to be able to go places to be able to see people yeah. to be able to have a hug or an embrace or a high five i mean mm -hmm. it's just been delightful over the last month or so as things are opening up a little bit for us to be able to encounter one another in flesh, you know, yeah. in person. And, um, and I can't help but be reminded of um, the, the way we think about the communion experience mm -hmm. or the Eucharist of being able to partake of God in physical form, not only in the incarnation of Jesus, but also in the commemoration in the body and blood of Christ. We respond to these physical elements because we are physical beings and we interact on that plane. It's important to us. It's important yeah. to our nature. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned it because just this morning, uh, Pete Peterson was telling me about a um, some sort of reality show that he's been watching where people go out and they have to live out in the you know Canadian wilderness by themselves and and uh, and figure out how to live alone. And the last person to 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 um, uh, give up and go home gets I don't know a million dollars or something. And <laughs> and you know they have some sort of you know button they can mash on a phone or something that you know they get rescued. And he said, every everybody who gives up, it's not because they're injured or because they're starving. It's because they're lonesome. And they say, I, I would rather have a person in my life than have a million dollars. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to go home. I, I could go another day without eating, but I can't go another day without seeing another person. Ooh, that is, that is a wonderful insight. That's really, really good. Yeah. Well, Diana, we have, I, I haven't even scratched the surface of all the things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, about a compass for deep heaven, but we talked about a lot, a lot of other things and we are now out of time. So, uh, thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and, and to, to hear your insights on, on, uh, how books get written in community. And, um, and I'm so excited to, I, I you know, when I, I, I didn't know until you and I were just talking that the circumstances around which this book was created. I love this idea that you are practicing what you preach and making this book happen. So, you know, a uh, lot of times when you have an essay collection, like a compass for deep heaven, what happens is uh, the scholar will say, I have an idea for a book. And then they'll send out a call for papers and then mm -hmm. different people in different parts of the world will say, I, I can contribute a chapter and I can mm -hmm. contribute a chapter. Then those are gathered together and the editors sort of irons them out a little bit mm -hmm. so they feel like a cohesive whole. And one of the things I love about A Compass for Deep Heaven is that we started from scratch. I started with a young group of uh, scholars 
And we said, we're going to read, we're going to spend a whole year reading these three science fiction books. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to come up with a theme together Mm -hmm. and we're going to research it together. And then we're going to write these chapters together. And one of the things I hope that readers see when they read A Compass for Deep Heaven is that these authors have been very involved with one another's storytelling. They've Mm -hmm. written and rewritten each other's chapters. They're not Mm -hmm. only contributors, but they have been editing and revising each other's work to create a cohesive tone and a coherent whole. And maybe the most fun for me of this whole process was watching these students research. So um, as a teacher of writing, when I'm working with a group like this, I tell them, I want you to think of yourselves as a hunter-gatherer tribe. (laughs) And when you go out into the stacks, into the reading, into the research, you're not just looking for things that might be relevant for your chapter. Mm -hmm. I want you to bring to class whatever you find that might be useful to any particular contributor to our volume. And so what class looked like for that year is Daniel would show up and then he'd turn to Maya and say, hey, I found this great website. I found this great interview. I found this terrific podcast. I found this whatever that's just right in line with what you're trying to do in your chapter. And Rachel and and Joel and, and Jacob, they would all bring material for the good of the group. And so even in the gathering stage, gathering the intellectual groceries, as it were, <laughs> that went into the making of this book, these students were very, very engaged with one another and incredibly generous uh, with yeah. one another. But their goal was to write a book that would help people who had read or tried to read Lewis and we're just having a little bit of trouble with it. In, in other words, they wanted to write the book that they wish they had had mm-hmm. when they started their own study yeah. of Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra and That Hideous Strength. And I think that that's maybe what's unique here. Uh, what's unique about this book is there's a lot of great literary analysis, but I think that readers might appreciate something that's kind of a step before the literary analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's the backdrops and building blocks that C.S. Lewis assumes that he takes for granted that we might not know. Things like the medieval cosmos or the realities of World War II Mm -hmm. or the classic H.G. Wells style science fiction tradition or King Arthur. We haven't even talked about King Arthur. We haven't even gotten to that. We have two chapters on King Arthur because that hideous strength relies so much on understanding who Merlin Mm -hmm. is and what logress means. And so if you, if you want to know about those things, uh, I think it's really, really valuable to take a look and see these chapters that unfold that in Compass for Deep Heaven. Yeah. I love this idea that you're loving the reader by saying, here's something I wish I had known. Yeah, exactly. Good way to approach anything you ever write. I love that. That's a great summation. Good job. (laughs) All right. Well, Diana, uh, thank you so much for being here. And I hope we can talk again soon. I, I love it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. 
Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.